Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Kate Lamble. Hello, Kate. Hello, and this week, can magnets help improve the language of stroke patients, the online currency making the leap into the real world, and do you count sheep to get some kip? Well, plants are also doing maths to get them through the night. We'll be finding out more. Can't wait. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, then email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or we have a Facebook page, of course, facebook.com slash The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And let's kick off with a look at this week's science news headlines. And up first, I've got an item about joint replacements. Things like hip replacements, knee replacements. These are big business. Millions of them take place around the world every week. But the reality is that we have a bit of a problem with them because over time they loosen. This means that by about a decade in, roughly 12% of them have had to be revised surgically because they have come loose or developed problems. At the moment, the way in which joint replacements are stuck into the bone is by using a sort of cement, and it's called PMMA, that stands for polymethylmethacrylate. And this has a number of issues because it has a different elasticity to bone. And this means that when a bone is loaded or bends a little tiny bit, the cement that's holding the prosthesis in bends by a different amount, and this encourages the two to part company or fracture. And over time, this causes the prosthesis to loosen. So is there a better way of doing things? Well, for a while, researchers tried making certain prosthetic surfaces that were very rough or porous, so the bone could grow into them. But that's largely been abandoned as well, because it just doesn't seem to be working. But there's a paper in Science Translational Medicine this week. It's by Paula Hammond and her colleagues at MIT. What they have done is to come up with a layering technique. So they coat the prosthetic device with a series of very thin layers and the innermost layer, which is only about one five thousandth of a millimetre thick, is made of a chemical called hydroxyapatite, which is the same mineral that you find in bone anyway. And then by dipping the prosthesis in two other chemicals, safe bio-friendly polymers, you get almost like an onion skin of layers building up around the prosthesis. And these outer layers dissolve and they're impregnated with a growth factor called bone morphogenetic protein. And this strongly encourages the growth of a cell type called osteoblasts. And osteoblasts make new bone form. And when they put these test pieces of titanium and also plastic coated with these materials into rats and then looked to see what happened, they found that these outer layers dissolve gently over time, releasing the growth factor. You get lots of these osteoblasts flocking in and making new bone around the implant. There's no signs of any inflammation. And, unlike previous implants, the bone grows right up to the implant and it then engages with that deepest layer, the hydroxyapatite layer, and it forms part of the bone with it. So the bone actually becomes one with the prosthetic device. So they're saying obviously it's early days, a rat is not a human, we need to measure these in a more clinically relevant example or environment, but it's certainly very encouraging and these are very, very standard chemicals that are very safe in humans. What's the next step from rats going towards human use? You need what they call a more physiologically relevant animal. This means an animal like a pig or 
uh, a chimp or some other kind of monkey, which you can do a sort of joint replacement or put something which is relevant to a human in so that you've got loading of the prosthesis in a sort of similar way to what you would expect in a person. Because just planting bits of the material into a bone and not loading it, not putting force onto it, doesn't really test the integrity of the material. Putting it in as a real joint is the real acid test and that's what you need to do to prove it's going to work. And I suppose you have to look at it over that 10-year period as well. Really, the icing's on the cake after 10 years because you've got to have that follow-up to show how it's safe and be that it works. Yeah, good point, Kate. That's a really exciting plan. I've been looking this week at another very serious illness, and that's stroke. So stroke happens when blood vessels in our brain either have a blockage or a hemorrhage, and that stops oxygen getting to certain parts of our brain. Now, because of this, in about 20 to 30% of cases, they get a condition called aphasia, which affects our ability to read, write, speak, or understand language. And as a former speech and language therapist like myself, it's a really, really debilitating and frustrating issue for patients, because not only have you normally got limb weakness, facial muscle weakness, but the inability to talk to your family and say that you're okay and communicate your wishes with the hospital staff is one of the most frustrating things that some stroke patients experience in the first few weeks. This is especially difficult in strokes which affect certain areas of your brain which deal with language. So there's Broca's area, which is in your frontal lobe, both on the left-hand side, which is just in front of your ear, and that affects how we produce speech, how we talk. And the other one is Wernicke's area, which is just a bit further back, just above, behind your ear, and that affects how we understand speech. So you can either be able to talk fluently but not really understand the words that you're saying or you can't speak and I've had patients within the NHS who are only able to use automatic language that means they're only able to use swear words to communicate themselves even though that's not what they're intending to do and they might not have sworn in the past so you can imagine it's quite a frustrating condition the usual treatment for this at the moment is just speech and language therapy and in the early stages I was talking to one of my friends today who works in one of the national stroke units all you can really do is help them to communicate their needs on a daily basis so there's not much they can do in the first few weeks so apart from getting people to the hospital quicker working on surgery quicker to get oxygen to those areas then there's not much we can do but this week a paper has just come out from a team at the McGill University in Montreal and they've used this thing called transcranial magnetic stimulation and that's using a magnetic coil which when you put it on next to someone's skull it creates a changing magnetic field which incites an electric current in the nerve cells just on the other side of their skull it's a a really low intensity but if you held this over the motor areas in your brain it would cause muscle twitching if you'd feel it working now what they hope is that by holding this next to those two areas i mentioned the broca's area and the vernicus area that's uh, important in aphasia that you'll be exercising these areas of the brain and it might help bring those back into use a bit quicker They tested this on 24 patients. They gave half of them this real stimulation and half of them fake. They gave them 20 minutes of a day along with 45 minutes of speech therapy for 10 days. And they found that those who received the transcranial magnetic stimulation had a three times greater recovery as measured on asphasia tests than those who didn't. Obviously, it's only 24 patients, so they want to do a lot larger trials, but it's looking very positive. Do they speculate, Kate, um, how it actually works? I know you said they thought it was exercising the, the brain. Do they give any indication as to why it benefits these people the way it does? What I would presume is that by exercising and inciting these electric currents in certain areas of the brain, you're keeping the cells that are still alive and haven't been completely deprived of oxygen active. And by keeping them active, you're helping them maintain connections and continue forming connections within the brain that might help them continue to be tied into that part of the brain. So it's keeping it in use, keeping it active, and hopefully help developing those connections. Thank you, Kate. The virtual currency Bitcoin has long been used by gamers to buy extra features online. 
but now users can spend their savings on real-life pints because in the past few weeks, some British pubs in London and in Cambridge have started to accept the online coins in the real world. Here is the quick-fire science on the quick-fire currency with Hannah Critchlow and Dominic Ford. Bitcoin is an online currency which can be exchanged from person to person without the need for a bank or other financial intermediary. It can be used in any country and aims to be independent of any central control. The currency was first described in 2008 in a paper by an anonymous person or group under the name Satoshi Nakamoto. A year later, the same group published the first freely available Bitcoin software and issued the first pieces of currency. Each Bitcoin is a specific piece of computer code. As well as exchanging Bitcoins, users can mine for new currency with their computers. Computers mine by solving complex mathematical equations which hold Bitcoins in the network. The difficulty of these changes depending on how many coins are being released. There were plans to limit the number of bitcoins to 21 million, which are predicted not to be uncovered until the year 2140. Although there is no central bank, all transactions made using bitcoin are noted in a public transaction log. This means that no one can try to pay for multiple purchases using the same coins. Each transaction on the log is also signed by a private code that is associated with the user's bitcoin wallet, proving it came from the correct owner. To use bitcoins in the real world, the shop produces a QR code for the purchase, which the customer then scans with their phone using a bitcoin app. Hannah Critchlow and Dominic Ford with this week's Quickfire Science, which you can also download separately as its own podcast from our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash quickfirescience. More news now. And Emma Stoy from Chemistry World is with us. Emma, you've got a story about a new tear-powered contact lens for diabetics. Shed some light on this one for us. This is an international team of scientists led by someone called Sergej Schlieve at Malmö University in Sweden. And they have been looking at different ways, as you say, to monitor glucose in diabetics because at the moment most diabetic people have to prick their finger several times a day to get some blood out and measure the glucose in that. It's annoying, it's invasive, painful and so they're looking at different ways to do this which aren't as invasive and one idea that's been floating around for quite a while is to do this using a contact lens because the levels of glucose in your tears actually quite closely track the levels in your blood. But one of the main problems with this is if you had an electrical sensor that could measure glucose and then maybe produce a display on the contact lens, you'd have to power it somehow. And you obviously can't put a battery onto a contact lens. So this has been a bit of a problem, a persistent problem, in fact. But now they think they've come up with the answer. And that is to develop a fuel cell which runs on tears. So essentially we have a contact lens that will sit on the eye. It will analyse the tear film to work out how much sugar is in the blood and it will also extract its energy from the tears. What on earth is it using in tears to run? So it actually uses ascorbate in tears which is an antioxidant. It's Vitamin C, isn't it? Yeah, vitamin C, exactly. So it, it doesn't influence the glucose level at all in the tears, which is important because if you want to measure it, you couldn't have any kind of fuel cell which interfered with that. So it uses ascorbate in tears and it also uses oxygen from the air that's around the eye to power this fuel cell. So the fuel cell has two electrodes. They're actually made of very thin films of gold 
and one of them is coated with some organic catalysts and the other with a natural enzyme, all completely biocompatible. They don't reckon it would hurt anything in the eye at all. And these catalysts, well, the one at the anode oxidises the ascorbate, so you get ions, and at the cathode you reduce oxygen. And so you get these charged particles and together they drive the fuel cell. And what prints out the glucose level on the contact lens? How does it alert the diabetic that they either need to eat a Mars bar (laughs) or to take some insulin? So that's a good question. They haven't exactly worked out how the sensor part, the electronics, would work. I think the eventual idea is, because it's on a contact lens, you could have the sensor that would detect the glucose and then you'd get a display, a visual display, that would be right in front of your eye. Why don't we use them already instead of subjecting people to pricking their fingers? The technology's not quite there yet. They haven't connected it all up yet. They've really just used theoretical calculations to say that on an actual contact lens, based on the ascorbate concentrations in tears and the rate of tear flow, that sort of thing, you could produce enough power for a very, very tiny sensor. But they still need to do a lot of testing. They need to test that you could actually arrange these on a contact lens, that all the materials would integrate, that they would work when you actually put this onto an eye. There's a lot which still needs to be worked out. One to keep our eye on then, but not quite there yet. Emma Story from Chemistry World. Thank you, Kate. I've also been looking this week about perception and imagination. So our perception, what we see and know about what's going on in the world around us, is a combination of all of our senses. What we see and what we hear all come together to tell us what's going on. But if our senses disagree with each other, we tend to come up with the wrong answer. So there's a famous illusion called the McGurk illusion that means if we hear someone saying the sound bar, but we see them saying the sound gar, we think they're saying dar. So our senses are disagreeing, so we sort of conglomerate the two and work out what's in the middle, basically. But some researchers at the Karolinska Institute have published a paper this week in Current Biology that has said, what about our imagination? Can us imagining hearing something affect what we see and play into this? So they've recreated three very famous perception experiments with one element imagined rather than heard to see if they can still work. So one of the experiments they did was if you imagine a cross of ramps that are going past each other and there's two discs at the top of those crosses and they run down and cross over each other. Now they asked some participants to imagine a sound happening just at the point at which those discs crossed each other, some to imagine it just before and some to imagine it just afterwards. And the ones that imagined the sound happening just as those discs crossed each other thought that they saw those discs bouncing back off each other and that illusion still worked. Similarly, they redid the McGurk illusion that I talked about a little bit earlier. They asked participants to imagine the sound bar, showed them a video of someone saying gar, and they still perceived the sound dar. So these experiments, which combine our different senses, are working even if one of those senses is imagined rather than actually happening. So this means that what we imagine is included in our perception of the world, and it's got real implications for some psychiatric disorders where people can't tell the difference between what is real and what is imagined, like schizophrenia. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought that that could work because you automatically think, I'll know that I'm imagining it. It's sort of similar that you say, could you tickle yourself? And the answer is, you can't. So why does this work, but I can't tickle myself? I also, reading it, imagined, surely if I'd been told that I needed to imagine a certain sound, I'd know that I was imagining it from the very beginning, so I'd know that I'd made that completely up and I'd be able to concentrate on what was going on. But it doesn't work. So they think some of the neural pathways between what our senses that we imagine and our senses that we actually see cross over in some way, and that those can be brought into our multisensory perception of the world... But this is sort of just initial thinking, this first test that shows that these illusions work, even with imagined tests. 
two little studies to finish, which I think are maybe they're Ig Nobel territory because they sort of make you laugh and then make you think. So the first one actually is looking at the global financial crisis of 2007 and eight. Not a laughing matter, of course, but what Lorenz Goetta, who's from the University of Lausanne, has published in PNAS this week, is the question. Well, whose fault was the global financial crisis? Everyone blames the bankers, but is it entirely their fault? Are the borrowers to blame partly as well? What they did was to obtain the mortgage borrowing records for a whole load of people who borrowed money in the subprime market in 2006 to seven. They followed up looking at these records with telephone interviews and they were rating their numerical ability and their verbal reasoning scores. They then correlate numerical ability with how likely these people are to have defaulted on their mortgage. People with the best numerical ability scores had the lowest rates of mortgage default. People with the worst scores had the highest rates, 25% versus 12%. They were twice as likely to default on their mortgage. There are two issues here. One, when you look at verbal reasoning, you don't really find a difference between the two groups. So it's not that one group are being sold a mortgage that they don't understand. And secondly, they say that actually if the deficiency is in numerical ability, maybe when people are assessing people for mortgages, what we need actually is a little bit of financial classes for homeowners or home buyers, help people to understand better how to do their finances so that they don't then take unnecessary risks or presumably overload themselves financially once they've already got a debt burden. I mean, in a way, it's not that surprising. You know, if you're terrible with numbers and you can't do maths, then you probably are more likely to default on your mortgage because you might miss a payment or not understand the charges or something. I'd argue that they're not necessarily being sold a mortgage that they don't understand. I have perfectly fine verbal reasoning skills, but if you sold me a mortgage based on my maths ability, I'd never get one. However, if you presented me with a load of figures and mortgage is going to include APR and interest rates and all of that kind of stuff, I might understand the reasoning, but I might not be able to imagine that proportion of APR and those consequences involved in that numerical system. So I'm sure that not only they might still not have understood it, but I still think it's the responsibility of the bankers not to have sold it to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope they won't start testing how good you are at maths when they give you a mortgage. Because <laughs> well, I think, unfortunately, Emma, that's exactly what they're saying they want to do. Oh, so no. you might see this coming along. <laughs> you go for a mortgage, come out with an A-level mm. in maths. The last thing I wanted to just mention, I think this is fascinating, Amanda Sacker, who's a researcher at University College London, they have said, if you are breastfed, what impact does this have on your social mobility? And they took very large groups of people, 16,000-ish people who were born in 1958 and an equivalently big group of people who were born in 1970, they asked what social class are the fathers of these people in. They then went back to these individuals when they were 33 years old and asked what do you do for a living to get their social class now and they asked the mothers of these children were you breastfeeding these children and how long for? And what they find is that if you were breastfed in any social class in those two cohorts, you have a 25% higher chance of going up the social ladder and a 20% lower chance of going down the social ladder. They don't know why you have this effect, but you clearly can benefit, whether it's a nutritional effect or an emotional effect. We know breastfed babies tend to respond to stress better than non-breastfed babies and the effect seems to be linked to being breastfed for more than four weeks so you can't just breastfeed once and then hope that you've endowed your child with some upward social mobility it's got to be a, a long-term thing i think we should also point out it probably doesn't work retrospectively so if there's any adults out there considering trying to elevate their social status with some breastfeeding this won't work either 
Did you say darn it? I did. (laughs) 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 If you'd like to follow up on any of those stories or studies, we've put the references and the transcripts on our website. It's at nakedscientist.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Kate Lambert. New research shows plants use molecular mathematics to get through the night to stave off starvation. Scientists at Britain's John Innes Centre published the study in the journal eLife this week and Naked Scientist Martha Henriquez spoke with the authors Alison Smith and Martin Howard. Martin began by explaining the problem posed to plants when the sun dips and how they cleverly use maths to solve it. During the night, the sun goes down. That, that's really the fundamental problem here, in that during the day, plants can, of course, get energy from sunlight through photosynthesis. But during the night, when the sun goes down, their source of energy disappears, and they have to come up with some way to compensate for that so that plant metabolism and growth can go on during the night. So the way in which plants solve this problem is that during the day, they store some of the energy which they get from sunlight in the form of starch. And during the night, this starch is broken down. And the observation was that the rate at which starch was broken down during the night was more or less constant during the night. If you measure the amount of starch as a function of time during the night, it kind of goes down as a straight line. Okay, so it seems that the plants are budgeting correctly for the amount of daylight that there is. That's right. They somehow seem to know how much starch they have, and they know how much time there is left until dawn, and then they budget appropriately for the starch degradation rate based on those two numbers. And interestingly, if you give the plants an unexpectedly early night, so these plants which we have in the growth rooms have spent their entire lives in one light regime, and suddenly you give them an earlier night than they've ever seen before, they're able to seamlessly readjust, rebudget, so that they can adjust their starch degradation such that they run out of their food reserves exactly at the time of expected dawn, even when the sunlight has disappeared earlier than they were expecting. And so your new interpretation in this study is that the plants were actually dividing one quantity by another. How did you come up with this idea? Well, that seemed to be the only hypothesis that was consistent with with our data. It didn't seem to matter how we tried to mess up the plants and the sunlight uh, regimes to which they were exposed, whether we gave them early nights, uh, late nights, whether we altered the intensity of light during the day. We tried lots of things to kind of interfere with this process. But whatever we did, the plants seemed to be able to rebudget appropriately. They would always get the right rate of degradation during the night, so they'd run out of their food reserves at dawn. And the only way that seemed to be consistent with our data for them to be able to do that in all circumstances was that they were really doing this division calculation, that they knew, that plants knew how much starch they have, they would have information about how much time there was to dawn, and they would divide these two numbers together to work out the right rate to eat up their starch. And what exactly does it mean for a plant to divide one number by another? As plants don't have a brain to do calculations, what does it mean for a plant to do arithmetic division on a molecular level? Right, right. I mean, it it does sound a rather extraordinary thing. We were certainly struck by this interpretation. The way in which we think it doesn't work, thinking about it naively, could could it be like a computer or a calculator? Is is a plant doing a a calculation like it's done on, on a computer? And we think that's extremely unlikely because the way in which computers do these calculations is very, very complicated. We think it's much more likely that it's implemented in a completely separate way. There are two molecules that are giving the plant information about the amount of starch and the time to dawn. 
And basically, one of these molecules is enhancing the rate of starch degradation, and the other molecule, which is measuring the time to dawn, is basically inhibiting it. So if you have one molecule that's trying to make something happen and another molecule that's trying to stop it, that's a little bit like doing a division calculation because the more you have of the molecule that's trying to stop it, the slower the rate you have, and that's rather like doing a division calculation. So it turns out that if you have these two molecules and you set up the right set of chemical reactions, then you can create a degradation rate that's the ratio of these two quantities. And that's how we think this is done. It's not really done digitally like it is in your computer. It's done in a much more analogue fashion through chemical reactions. And part of this analogue reaction is regulated by the internal clock that the plants have. Yes, so so the molecule that's giving the information about the time to dawn comes from the circadian clock. So plants, uh, just like us, have an internal circadian clock which tells them when a dawn is going to come and when the sun is going to rise so they can switch on the appropriate genes to do the right things at that time. So we think that the timing information comes from the circadian clock and indeed I think we're, we're fairly certain about that because we know that in certain plants where the circadian clock has been interfered with, the plants start to make decisions that are incorrect. And Alison, this work happened through quite a novel collaboration and came up with a very novel result. The idea of any organism doing arithmetic division is new and this may be something that needs to be looked at more widely in different types of organisms. We're very surprised and excited by this, the fact that plants can do maths and they sit there in the night and they have to do maths. So this is perhaps something else that I'd like to emphasise. This is not some trivial thing. If the plant gets the sum wrong... So it degrades its starch too fast and runs out of starch before dawn. We know that the plant gets into serious problems. We have mutants which do this, and those plants grow more slowly because they can't manage their carbon budgets properly. So this has profound implications for plant productivity, obviously with knock-on effects on the way that we might study how to increase plant productivity in the future. Similarly, if the plant gets the sun wrong and doesn't use all of its starch up, then it's wasting energy that it's stored, and again, it's less productive. So this is really important for plant productivity. And, I mean, just as a very rough back-of-an-envelope calculation, perhaps a third of the carbon that's in life on Earth went through this metabolic pathway. So understanding how the plant controls it is really quite fundamental to biology in general. Alison Smith, ending that report by Naked Scientist Martha Henriquez. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lamble, and with Chris Smith. Now on to our topic for the rest of the show, and this week we'll be discussing modelling, but not the catwalk type, instead medical mimicry. When researchers want to peer inside the human body to understand it better, one option is to create an artificial model of the area they're interested in, be it the lung, the heart or breast tissue. They can then tweak this artificial system to test drugs and see how it reacts in order to understand it better. And Kelly Berabay is a researcher at Cardiff University who's doing just this for lung tissue. Hello, Kelly. Hello. So what's involved in trying to make a model lung in a dish? A lot of work, that's for sure, and a a lot of innovation and a a lot of patience. But first I should begin by probably telling you what a model is. With modelling, I would say it's basically like being a hobbyist you you reproduce an item of interest so in my case we're looking at building a replica of the airway region of the lungs and that's the conducting part of the lungs the big tubes where air moves in and out because that's the area where when you inhale something it takes the biggest hit so we like to focus on that region for um, any kind of inhalation studies 
And for using models, well, they're useful because you can replicate them endlessly, very quickly, usually very economically, whereas if you compare that with animals, they're very expensive. You'd have to let them live their whole lifespan if you wanted to make a comparison with the human situation. The other thing is that with using models that you create, you can then change little parameters on those models and then measure those. That gets rid of the problem with extrapolating animal data to the human situation because if you're using human tissues like we use, we use um, lung cells and tissues donated from patients, then you have human endpoint data. So you make a number of compelling positives for why this is a, a good idea, but it's presumably not trivial to make something that behaves, looks and functions as a lung in a dish. Yes, it's, I mean, we've been working on this now for 10 years and we used to work with animals for the past 15 years and we weren't getting anywhere. And then uh, I think about 2003, we were able to buy human tissues. You could procure cells from human tissue banks. And we started dabbling with them and all of a sudden questions that were eluding us for years, we were getting the answer to those very quickly in a matter of a year or so. So we decided that we were going to leave the animals and move right into human tissues. And it was like a Lego system. We just started playing with different cells, different media, different bioreactors, because we needed to make the cells in 3D to work. If they're in 2D, like in a Petri dish, you don't get the same reactions that you would get if it was in the human body. How do you get the cells to grow into that three-dimensional structure that the lung is, first point? And second point, if you look in a lung, they're not just one type of cell. There are many different types of cell, aren't there? There are muscle cells, glandular tissue, epithelial cells that line the airways, and then special surfactant-making cells that make the air sacs where the respiratory exchange takes place. It's really complicated. Chris, you can work in my lab. <laughs> you sound like you know a lot. But yes, there's over 40 different cell types in the lung, and they're divided into three different regions. You have the upper respiratory system, which traps things and tries to prevent them from getting into the lower lung. Then you have the thoracic region, where we work in, that has a lot of defense mechanisms. And then in the, the lower lung, the distal lung, you have the alveolar region where you breathe, where people exchange oxygen and CO2. And you don't want anything in that area because you'll get inflammation. So we work in the, the thorax, where it has the highest number of defense cells in that area, because its job is to stop things from getting into um, where you actually breathe. Now, in that region, there's about seven key cells. And what we do is we take the basal stem cells from donors. And the cool thing here is that we can use medical waste tissue. So if you have an operation and they open you up and they have to nick out some tissue and they throw it away, we can buy that. They usually incinerate that. So we buy it. We take out the stem cells or the cells that we're interested in. And then we regrow them in bioreactors. And these are special membranes in, they look like little Petri dishes, like little cups, about the size of a pea. And the top part is open to the air, and the bottom part you feed. And that's just like how we breathe. When we breathe in air, it goes over the tissue, and you get your nutrients from below. Do the cells know where to go? Yes, this is like a military secret. I could tell you, but then I have to kill you type thing, because it's all patented in technology. But... I'm sure the other people will tell you this, using the 3D culture media that we created, it has the right amount of hormones and chemicals that tell the cells when and what to turn into, basically, at what time. And it grows a multi-layer into seven different cell types. And um, you get your mucus secretion, you get your cilia doing the samba, beating back and forth, and it looks just like a piece of tissue that you would take out of a person. And what sorts of questions 
can you ask and answer with this that you couldn't do previously when you were working with, say, mice or other rodents, other experimental animals? We know we can accurately dose ourselves because when we used to do installation work where you inject a fluid with a particulate matter or something into the lung, we were never really sure where the compounds were going. We would just put it in and faithfully think, we've put a milligram in, a milligram per mil, and we're hoping it's dispersing throughout the whole lung. But you never know. So this way we can accurately put a dose on that's environmentally relevant so we're not overdosing the cells. And it's very reproducible and very consistent. So I suppose getting the numbers up to a way that you can say this is statistically valid is easier. Absolutely. We buy in about 500,000 cells from donors and we'll get about 400 pea-sized lungs to work on. And they last for about two weeks, which is rare. So you can do acute, chronic and repeat toxicity testing. And in terms of cosmetics, this is a big deal now because in March this year, the EU had this directive where they banned the sales of any cosmetics that were tested in animals. So it's often an alternative device now to industry where they've always relied on animals. And you can do that testing for them? That's the whole idea now. We're trying to develop a model where people can test compounds that are going to be used for cosmetics and beauty purposes as well as obviously safety testing for um, medicines and think of all the stuff that's in the air, air fresheners, aerosols, pesticides, perfumes, you know, makeup. It's an endless list of things that we're inhaling into our lungs. The fact is that my lungs are part of me and I have an immune system. A Petri dish doesn't. It doesn't have a blood flow. There are other aspects of the model that you can't reproduce with your dish. So how do you know that you're not missing something, even though you're using human cells? Very good question. The thing is that people have to realise is that when you're working with alternatives, it's a reductionist-type model. And the whole idea is that if it's not complex, you can avoid a lot of confounding factors. So you can tweeze out little delicate things that you would miss. For example, the immune system or if it's a female and the hormones are in the way, those reactions could mask things that you're trying to find. So what these alternative methods do is they give you a look at the least complex situation and something of interest should stick out. You can build up and use more complex models to try to answer your questions, such as using in silico or other in vitro models of different tissues in the body. As we're going to find out next, Kelly Berube from Cardiff University, thank you very much. As Kelly just explained, it's now possible to model a functioning 3D lung and gain valuable information about its system. But there are lots of other tissues that scientists are also interested in modelling, including breast tissue. We're joined in the studio by Dr Jonathan Campbell from Cambridge University, who works on this area. Jonathan, why are we so interested in modelling breast tissue? Well, it's the most prevalent cancer in females. So if you are able to model the normal situation you are going a long way towards turning on oncogenes and introducing the tumour microenvironment into that normal situation and actually studying physiologically what happens in oncogenesis. So by modelling a breast tissue as it normally is, we can introduce cancerous genes and cells and work out what happens and hopefully from that point, I suppose, work out drugs to try and stop that process. That's right. So are you using human cells like Kelly is? Well, at the moment, we've produced a model that I say is physiological to the point where it even produces milk but we are now moving into producing a human model of breast tissue. 
So what's that model at the moment using instead of human tissue? So what we have is, as was explained previously, we have a similar setup. It's in fact a natural biomaterial, which is effectively collagen and also proteoglycans. And we introduce the principal components of the mammary gland into that model. Firstly, fat cells, and also the breast tissue itself, which is a branching epithelium. And we are effectively redeveloping the model in the dish in a natural form. So in the breast, during puberty and in pregnancy, you get this massive elaboration of this tree. And we're actually effectively doing that again in the dish. So we're quite confident it's physiological. You're putting these fat cells together, but you said it even lactates. Are there certain cells to do that? Or once you put it in a model, does it automatically work out how to do that and form a breast tissue as a whole? There's a certain amount of it automatically doing that yes you give them a little bit of nurturing and they'll seem to do what they do best are those fat cells that you're putting do they come from humans or do they come from another sort of test animal as it stands it's purely cell lines and these are derived from mouse tissue. how similar is breast tissue in, in mice and humans because if they're forming their structure that they they're used to that they know about like you just mentioned is that sort of physiological structure and layers are they similar in both mice and humans they're relatively similar. I mean, obviously, the gland is a lot bigger, as we know, in the human. The compartment of different cells is slightly different. So in the human, there are more fibroblasts, for instance. Kelly just talked about having a pea-sized lung. If you're taking mice breast tissue, how small is that within our dish? The scaffold that we use is actually, you could cut it to any size. In terms of the these small organoids that form within the scaffold, we're talking of about half a millimetre in length. You're working towards building a model that replicates human that you can then introduce these cancer cells to. Once you get to that point, what can a 3D cell model tell us about breast cancer that other cancer research into genes or within sort of patients who have the disease can't tell us? What's it going to tell us that's different? What's quite exciting is that we can actually move into looking at primary cells and these form similar structures but they form what's known as the basement membrane. So they're enveloped by a particular array of proteins. And what's exciting is that cancer is dangerous, of course, when it spreads. And what, one of the things they have to do is they have to force themselves away or through this protein mix. So we can actually monitor that in real time. You can't do that in any other way. So we're able to actually, because it's on in the dish, you can actually see what, see it going on. So you can watch the, the cancer cells spreading along. Once we know more about that mechanism, that, what can we use that information for? Can we test new cancer drugs and see how that affects it? Certainly we can. The thing to realise about cancer is it's a highly individual disease. So if we can form these small little mammary glands effectively in the dish and we can move into a human model then we can test all manner of compounds on individual tissue from individual donors and that's very exciting because each person's cancer is different. We're going to be talking in just a moment to some computer modelers who do their modelling theoretically. What advantages do you think that cell modelling has that if you looked at this from a computer point of view you wouldn't be able to find out? Computer modelling of course has its place but the biological situation is much more unreliable and I think it was summed up by a talk I went to uh, last week actually in London by a professor at Oxford, Professor Philip Maney, who stated that in mathematics if you divide one by two you get a half and in biology if you divide one by two you get two. It's basically unpredictable. Them's fighting words. Um, we'll see what Catherine and Peter have to say about that in a moment. Thank you very much to Jonathan Campbell from Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kate Lamble and with me, Chris Smith. 
So we've heard so far about how we can model diseases in dishes, using cells from animals and using cells from humans. But what about using a computer? We're joined now by Catherine Fletcher from Oxford University and Peter Cole from Imperial College London, who are doing precisely this. Hello to both of you. Hello. Good evening. We'll be talking to Peter in just a moment about his use of cardiac computer models. But first, Catherine, how do computer models compare with delving into the dish? Well, if you're asking me whether a model on a screen is better than a model on a dish, I have to say that neither is as good as we would like them to be. Tissue isn't a whole organism and neither is a computational model. But the trick is to pick the most useful tool to answer a particular question. And where computers are especially good is at integrating lots of different types of information. You could imagine at a patient level, in the case of breast cancer, you might look at an MRI scan, mammogram results, information about genetic markers and other blood tests, maybe the patient's history and risk factors. And if you were able to plug that all into a computer, it would help you sort through the data to find the most interesting points. At a more basic science level, we could use computers to integrate different readings from experiments by mapping, for example, the behavior that's known about cells onto a geometric mesh representing the, the anatomy of the organism to, for example, find out what is driving a particular type of irregular behavior. I'm here on behalf of the Virtual Physiological Human Project, whose aim is to make computational models of the human body in health and disease so that different models of different parts of the body can be plugged together to answer different questions. Could you just introduce us to the concept of what the Virtual Physiological Human is and how this came about? Yeah, it's a European Commission-funded, very ambitious initiative using computers to integrate data going from the sort of subcellular or smaller scale levels up, as well as going back again from the whole human level, back down and mapping them together in ways that are interchangeable. Since about 2008, the EC has funded 46 projects on a variety of different topics, from tumor growth to drug safety to osteoporosis and aneurysms, each of them working in its own area, but trying to make sure they all use standards so that those models could be used together in different ways in the future. So they speak a sort of common computer language so that if you're developing a model of the kidney, it will talk to ultimately the model of the heart, so data from one could inform results from another. Absolutely. Now, doing that in practice is quite tricky. I, I mean, just getting software to run on your own computer sometimes, you'll, you'll run into difficulties. But that is absolutely the idea. And by using common computer software languages, for example, allows you to then plug them together. So most of the initial setup of the project must have been defining those sorts of standards that the individual groups will work to. Out of the 46 projects that have been funded, one of them was called the Network of Excellence, whose job was to basically serve as a rallying point for researchers to understand what others in the field are doing and together develop best practice and standards. And so there have been a lot of technical things developed through that, such as ontologies, which is standardized vocabulary for describing a model. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, vph-portal.eu is the VPH portal website where you can find all of this information online if you're interested. Why can't we create an entire human model that can work all this out at the same time? It's actually technically quite complicated to do that. If you were trying to run a model, for example, of a human heart beating using a very up-to-date computational model, you'd have to get that to run not only accurately, but you'd have to get it to run faster than real time because it's no good to predict that a person is going to die of a heart condition in five years' time if it takes you seven years to predict that. So you have to get these models to be both accurate and extremely quick before they're useful. I presume when we start the model, we have to plug in all the data we know to get it to work accurately. Where do we get that data in the first place? 
there might be information pulled from scientific literature, so you might find experiments in papers and you can borrow the data from them. It might be coming from real-world sources from patients, so for example, MRI data or scans of various body parts that might be diseased. And the trick is finding ways that you can combine them so that you might be able to map the picture of the MRI of a particular person's tumor shape to what is already known also about how other tumors of that type grow and combining them in a meaningful way to guess what treatment this patient might respond to best. So where are you at now? So you have the standards defined, you've got these projects funded to start building models of, of individual systems. Where are we in terms of actually having a model person in a computer? The idea is still not actually to ever run them all as one individual, at least not as the model stand. The idea is to select the pieces that you're interested in so we have lots of very well-developed models, for example, in the cardiac field. Musculoskeletal models are also quite good. Where there's been a lot of really interesting done, things done with uh, viruses and also with cancer. You can imagine how those pieces could all interplay quite well, for example. And Peter, you're working on one of those projects to do with that cardiac modelling. What do you need to look at in order to model how the heart works on a computer? We need to first perhaps start off with agreeing on what we understand under the terminology of a model. I think the definition that the dictionaries offer a simplified representation of reality is very helpful because if we appreciate that any model that we might want to use in whatever circumstance a simplified representation of that reality, we also realize that any model, regardless of whether it is a lung in a dish or a model of the heart, will have its own limitations. If we appreciate that, then from there it follows that the idea, and that is coming back to a question you asked slightly earlier, of an all-inclusive model of the human is a bit of a contradiction in terms. Are we not really in a position where all that the model knows is all that we know? So until we've done the biology, how can we have a computer that's actually any better? If our models did indeed contain all the knowledge we have, that would be great, and I don't think we can claim that for any of our model systems, including computer models. If they did have that knowledge, however, they would be suitable and useful in different ways. One would be to treat them as an expert system that can be interrogated. Their real use for computational models, such as of the heart, is to use them to try and understand better the experimental or clinical data that we receive. A single cell of the heart is a very complex entities. These cells are governed by processes at the molecular level that are so complex and that interact via multiple feed-forward and feedback mechanisms that certainly my brain is not good enough to interpret findings that we may observe in an experimental setting. So running computer simulations at the same level and in parallel to experimental studies can be incredibly helpful in understanding what you're doing. The next step beyond that, and that is, I think, where it gets really exciting and really interesting, is to run simulations first before you go into the lab or before you consider what you might want to do with a patient because you explore the parameter space in theoretical investigations that might allow you to predict what the most likely path for success might be. And success in this context depends entirely on the application that may be development of a drug or a neat experimental series that gives you a clear-cut answer. So, Peter, when you've been modelling the heart on a computer, what have you found so far by testing that model? 
One angle that I'm taking is that of an experimental researcher who tries to combine experimental and theoretical investigations. And these models have been incredibly helpful in planning better experiments. In particular, when we find that our models do not reproduce what we expect. That may sound slightly counterintuitive, but if you have the best conceived model there is, and it doesn't quite reproduce what you see, then it highlights a shortcoming in our understanding. It poses a question. And science really is all about the question. Now, in terms of more applied aspects, such as the development of drugs, I wish we had Gary Murrams here with us, who is conducting cardiac single cell modeling at Oxford University. And what Gary has done is to look into how one can try and predict side effects of pharmaceutical agents very early in the development stage. You see, the most frequent cause for drugs that may otherwise be very useful that requires them to be withdrawn from the market are cardiac side effects. Now, Gary Murrams has developed a technique that is, one might say, reductionist in that he looks at the shape of that electrical signal in a cardiac cell before people looked at one single ion channel type and predicted what might happen. Now, he uses three ion channel types, and that may sound really small, but the impressive thing is that his ability to predict the likelihood of a cardiac side effect has improved multiple times over what was possible before. It shows that a simplified model has its place to play in the process of explaining phenomena. Thank you so much to Catherine Fletcher from Oxford University and Peter Cole from Imperial College London. And finally this week, Hannah's been punching into our question of the week. This week, we consider conscious control. Tom O'Hurley got in touch with this. I heard a boxer say, I knew it was time to retire when, in a fight, I saw my opening and knocked the guy out. Up until then, I had never seen the opening until my fist was coming out. What implication does this have for free will? It was his intention to knock him out, but he did it as a trained reflex before he was aware. First up, what is free will and how is it involved in trained movement? Dr Tristan Birkenstein at Cambridge University has this to say. Free will is the idea that you can decide something feeling that you have the ownership of that decision. When you, for example, learning to ride a bike or when you're learning to punch someone when you're training to be a, a serious boxer. Those decisions that initially you have to think about them they slowly become automatic. So in a way, you're losing the free will while these things become automatic. To take a decision and reflect on that decision to be sure that you're going to do it and then do it, it takes forever in terms of cognitive processing. It takes 300 or 400, 500 milliseconds with training. The movements become so automatic that you forgot that you were taking the decision to move. In fact, you're not taking the decision to move consciously anymore. And if you're not taking a decision consciously, therefore you're not doing it in a free will manner. So as we learn new movements, we exert free will to control our bodies. But with training, this movement becomes automatic and conscious control is lost. Movement is controlled in motor regions and circuits in the brain. But what happens here as we age? Prof Patrick Haggard from University College London explains. So I think what happens to the boxer as they become older is that the circuits that allow them to land the punch don't operate quite as fast as they originally did. 
they begin to slow down, just like a lot of our brain function slows down. And after a while, they're operating sufficiently slowly that the boxer's conscious experience can actually keep up with them. So he's aware of what he's doing. So his action control has slowed down over time to the same kind of rather slow speed that conscious cognition operates at. And at that point, it's too slow to beat his opponent and he ought to stop. And is this type of phenomena found elsewhere other than during, say, riding my bicycle or sports training like boxing? Over to Dr. Gabriel Kreiman at Harvard Medical School. This phenomenon is also apparent in trained musicians playing complex pieces. In many of these situations, consciousness seems to interfere with complex action patterns. What consciousness and free will bias is flexibility, perhaps at the expense of lower reaction times. Reflexes are faster, but they lack adaptability. As the question suggests, extensive training can transfer conscious actions into non-conscious reactions. Crick and Koch refer to these non-conscious reactions as zombie modes. Both systems, non-conscious reactions and conscious actions, are important and have probably conveyed evolutionary advantages. Thanks, Tristan, Patrick and Gabriel. We next train our brains to puzzle over this question. Hello, Dr. Hanna. This is Ahmed coming in from the New York, New Jersey area. And I have a question about a person's exposure to the elements in outer space. Say if an astronaut were to release their helmet uh, while they're outside on their spacewalks, would that astronaut first freeze due to the lack of heat or explode due to the lack of air pressure? Thank you. So, freezing or fragmentation in space. Which comes first? Let us know your thoughts. Hannah Critchlow, and if you'd like to get in touch with an answer to help us out, then do so by writing to chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists or also put your thoughts on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Kelly Berabay, Jonathan Campbell, Catherine Fletcher and Peter Cole. Thanks to Kate Lamble for joining me. The production was by Hannah Critchlow. And next week we're reaching for the stars because Dominic Ford is going to the seaside in Scotland, actually, for the National Astronomy Meeting, which is taking place in St Andrews. He'll be reporting on the latest stargazing findings. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>